Part One, Chapter Three of Australia Felix. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Australia Felix by Henry Handel Richardson. Part One, Chapter Three. He retraced his steps by the safe conduct of a full moon, which showed up the gaping black mouths of circular shafts and silvered the water that flooded abandoned oblong holes to their brim. Tents and huts stood white and forsaken in the moonlight. Their owners were either gathered on Bakery Hill, or had repaired to one of the gambling and dancing saloons that lined the main street. Arrived at the store, he set his frantic dog free, and putting a match to his pipe began to stroll up and down. He felt annoyed with himself for having helped to swell the crowd of malcontents, and still more for his foolishness in giving the rein to a momentary irritation as if it mattered a dot what trash these foreigners talked. No thinking person took their bombast seriously. The authorities, with great good sense, let it pass for what it was, a noisy blowing off of steam. At heart, the diggers were as sound as good pippins. A graver consideration was Purdy's growing fellowship with the rebel faction. The boy was too young and still too much of a fly-by-night to have a black mark set against his name— it would be the more absurd, considering that his sincerity in espousing the digger's cause was far from proved. He was of a nature to ride Tantivy into anything that promised excitement or adventure, with, it must regretfully be admitted, an increasing relish for the limelight, for theatrical effect. See the cunning with which he had made capital out of a bandaged ankle and dirty dress. At this rate, and with his engaging ways, he would soon stand for a little god to the rough, artless crowd. No, he must leave the diggings, and Mahony rolled various schemes in his mind. He had it. In the course of the next week or two, business would make a journey to Melbourne imperative. Well, he would damn the extra expense and take the boy along with him. Purdy was at a loose end, and would no doubt rise like a fish to a fly at the chance of getting to town free of cost. After all, why be hard on him? He was not much over twenty, and at that age it was natural enough, especially in a place like this, for a lad to flit like a butterfly from every cup that took his restless fancy. Restless? Mm, it was the word Purdy had flung back at him earlier in the evening. At the time he'd rebutted the charge with a glance at fifteen months spent behind the counter of a store. But there was a modicum of truth in it, none the less. The life one led out here was not calculated to tone down any innate restlessness of temperament, on the contrary it directly hindered one from becoming fixed and settled. It was on a par with the houses you lived in, these flimsy tent and draught-riddled cabins you put up with for the time being, was just as much of a makeshift affair as they. Its keynote was change. Fortunes were made and lost and made again before you could say Jack Robinson— Whole townships shot up overnight to be deserted the moment the soil ceased to yield. The people you knew were here to-day and gone, sold up, burnt out, or dead and buried, to-morrow. And so, whether you would or not, your whole outlook became attuned to the general unrest. You lived in a constant anticipation of what was coming next. Well, he could own to the weakness with more justification than most— if trade continued to prosper with him as it did at present, it would be no time before he could sell out and joyfully depart for the old country. In the meantime, why complain? He had much to be thankful for. To take only a small point, was this not Saturday night? Tomorrow the store was closed, and a string of congenial occupations offered. 
from chopping the week's wood, a clean and wholesome task which he gladly performed, through the pages of an engrossing book to a botanical ramble around old Buninyong. The thought of it cheered him. He stooped to caress his two cats who had come to bear him the mute and pleasant company of their kind. What a night! The great round silver moon floated serenely through space, dimming the stars as it made them, and bathing the earth in splendour. It was so light that straight black lines of smoke could be seen mounting from chimneys and open-air fires. The grass-trees which supplied the fuel for these fires spread a pleasant balsamic odour, and the live-red patches contrasted oddly with the pale ardour of the moon. Lights twinkled over all the township, but were brightest in Main Street, the course of which they followed like a rope of fireflies, and at Government Camp on the steep western slope, where, no doubt as young Purdy had impudently averred, the officials still sat over the dinner-table. It was very quiet, no grog-shops or saloons of entertainment in this neighbourhood, thank goodness, and the hour was still too early for drunken roisterers to come reeling home. The only sound to be heard was that of a man's voice singing oft in the stilly night, to the yetching accompaniment of a concertina. Mahony hummed the tune. But it was growing cold, as the nights were apt to do on this tableland once summer was past. He whistled his dog, and Pompey hurried out with a guilty air from the back of the house, where the old shaft stood that served to hold refuse. Mahony put him on the chain, and was just about to turn in when two figures rounded the corner of a tent and came towards him, pushing their shadows before them on the milk-white ground. "'Davenin', Doc,' said the shorter of the two, a nuggety little man who carried his arms curved out from his sides, gorilla fashion "'Oh, good evening, Mr. O'Cock,' said Mahony, recognising a neighbour. "'Why, Tom, that you? Back to already, my boy?' This to a loutish, loose-limbed lad who followed behind. "'You don't, of course, come from the meeting?' "'Not me, indeed,' gave back his visitor with gall, and turned his head to spit the juice from a plug. "'I've got something better to do as to listen to a pack of jabbering foreigners setting one another by the ears.' "'Nor you, Tom?' Mahony asked the lad, who stood sheepishly shifting his weight from one leg to the other. "'Nay, nor him either,' jumped in his father, before he could speak. "'I'll have none of my boys playing the fool up there.' "'And that reminds me, Doc, young Smith'll get hisself into the devil of a mess one of these days "'if you don't look after him a bit better than you do. "'I heard him spouting away as I came past, "'using language about the government fit to turn you sick.' Mahony coughed. "'He's but young yet,' he said dryly. "'After all, youth's youth, sir, and comes but once in a lifetime. "'And you can't make lads into wiseacres between sundown and sunrise.' "'No, by God, you can't,' affirmed his companion. "'But I think youth's just a fine name for a sort of piggish mess. "'What's the good one would like to know of getting old and learning wisdom "'and knowing the good from the bad when every lousy young fathead that's born into the world "'starts out again to muddle through it for himself in his own way? "'And that things has got to go on like this just the same for ever and ever. "'Why, it makes me fair tired to think of it. "'My father didn't hold with youth. "'He knocked it out of us by thrashing just like lying and thieving.' "'And it's the best way, too. "'What's that, you say?' "'He flounced around on the unoffending Tom. "'Nothing. "'You was only sniffling, was you? "'You keep your fly-trap shut, me fine fellow, "'and make no mousy sounds to me, "'or it'll be the worse for you, I can tell you. "'Come, Mr. O'Cock, don't be too hard on the boy. "'Not be hard on him. "'When I've got the nasty galoon on me hands again like this. 
chucks up the good post i get him in Kilmore without a by your leave or by your leave too lonely for his lordship it was mr sounder women's petticoats he did he turned fiercely on his son here don't you stand staring there you get home and fix up for the night now then what are you dawdling for pighead the boy slunk away when he disappeared his father again took up the challenge of mahony's silent disapproval i can't hardly bear the sight of him doc disgracing me as he's done him a father and not eighteen till june a son o mine who can't see a wench with her bodice open but what he must be arter no sir no son o mine i'm a respectable man i am of course of course oh but they're a sore trial to me these boys doc henry's the only one if it weren't for henry johnny he can't pass the drink and now is this young swine started a nose out of the women there's good stuff in the lads i'm sure of it they're just sowing their wild oats they'll sow no oats with me i'll tell you what it is mr ocock you need a woman about your place to make it a bit more homelike said mahony calling to mind the pigsty in which ocock and his sons housed "'Course I do,' agreed O'Cock. "'And Melia, she'll come out to her daddy soon as ever the old woman kicks the bucket. Drat her! It's her I've got to thank for all the mischief.' "'Well, well,' said Mahony, and rising, knocked out his pipe on the log. Did his old neighbour once get launched on the subject of his wife's failings, there was no stopping him. "'We all have our crosses.' "'That I have. And I'm keeping you out of your bed, Doc, with me blather.' "'Bug, come, and that reminds me I came here special to see you to-night. "'Been getting a bit moonstruck, I reckon.' "'And he clapped on his hat. "'Drawing a sheaf of papers from an inner pocket, "'he selected one and offered it to Mahony. "'Mahony led the way indoors, and lighting a kerosene lamp, "'stooped to decipher the letter. "'For some weeks now he had been awaiting the delivery of a load of goods, "'the invoice for which had long since reached him.' From this communication, carried by hand, he learnt that the drayman, having got bogged just beyond Bacchus March, had decamped to the ovens, taking with him all he could cram into a spring-cart, and disposing of the remainder for what he could get. The agent in Melbourne refused to be held responsible for the loss, and threatened to prosecute if payment for the goods were not immediately forthcoming. Mahony, who here heard the first of the affair, was highly indignant at the tone of the letter, and before he had read to the end resolved to let everything else slide and to leave for Melbourne early next morning. Ocock backed him up in this decision, and with the aid of a great quill pen stiffly traced the address of his eldest son, who practised as a solicitor in the capital. "'Go you straight to Henry, Doc. Henry'll see you through.' Brushing aside his dreams of a peaceful Sabbath, Mahony made preparations for his journey. Waking his assistant, he gave the man, a stupid clodhopper but honest and attached, instructions how to manage during his absence, then sent him to the township to order horses. Himself he put on his hat and went out to look for Purdy. His search led him through all the drunken revelry of a Saturday night and it was close on twelve before, having followed the trace from bowling alley to Chinese cookshop, from the Adelphi to Mother Flanagan's and haunts still less reputable, he finally succeeded in catching his bird. End of Part 1 Chapter 3